Hello, my name is Ran, and this is the Flow Artist Podcast. Every episode, my co-host Joe Stewart and I speak with inspiring movers, thinkers, and teachers about how they find their flow and much, much more. I'd like to start by honoring the traditional owners of the land on where this episode was recorded, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Joe and I pay our respects to elders past, present, and emerging. This week, we're speaking to Nishala Joy Devi, who is well known and loved for her innovative way of expressing yoga, from the physical to the subtle for spiritual growth and healing. Her deep love and respect for these teachings shines through as she reinterprets these sacred texts with the goal of empowering each individual reader to find connection, understanding, and benefit from this wisdom for their own personal growth and greater contribution to our world. Nishala has created numerous books and trainings, although in this interview, we're focusing on the newly released revised edition of The Secret Power of Yoga, A Woman's Guide to the Heart and Spirit of the Yoga Sutras. This book is widely known and loved as the definitive feminine interpretation of Patanjali's Yoga Sutras, and the new edition is expanded to include all four padas. She has a background in Western medicine and is known for her work with Dean Ornish's Reversing Heart Disease Program and the Commonwealth Cancer Health Program, as well as the Yoga of the Heart Program that helps yoga teachers and health professionals adapt yoga practices for the special needs of this population. Please be advised, we do discuss Nishala's 25 years of monastic life at the Satchadananda Ashram, and right at the end of the interview, we have a deeper discussion of the fallout and her response to the abuse that took place there. All right, let's get into our conversation with Nishala Joy Devi. All right, Nishala, thank you so much for speaking with us today. It's great to get the chance to speak with you. I was just wondering if you could start by just sharing with us how you discovered yoga. Oh, okay. Well, thank you. I just want to thank you for allowing me to be with you today. And across the miles, it's wonderful. You know, how I started in yoga. I I don't know if I can really succinctly say the answer to that, because I think it was something that was brewing in me for a long time in childhood, but couldn't identify what it was. And I was originally working in Western medicine. I was a physician's assistant and I was really getting burnt out, really burnt out and decided that I needed to take care of my body, my mind, but also my spirit because the work I was doing was so intense. And I walked up to this and this is a while ago. So you have to realize it wasn't, there wasn't a yoga studio in every corner like there is now. Actually, it's a, a pretty funny story because I was exhausted one night and I went to eat dinner at one of my favorite restaurants, which is called the Good Karma Cafe, right? And there was a man sitting across the table from me. He said, you look exhausted. He said, why don't you try yoga? There's an institute right down the street. So the next day, as it turned out, I I wasn't feeling well and I couldn't go into work to spread it around to the patients. So I decided to go walk down there. And as I walked up the steps, I saw this picture of this being, this man. And I looked into his eyes and I said to myself at the time, I don't know what he has, but whatever it is, I want it. 
I want to feel like that. And that was it. I started and the rest is history. I just, yoga drew me to it because of its expansiveness. That's what I loved about yoga. If you were devotional, you could be there. If you were analytical, you could be there. If you were physical, you could be there. There was something for everyone. And I thought that to me is real spirituality, where no matter where you are, no matter what stage of life you're at, there's something for you. And it can take you through your whole life. So after that, there was no turning back. I became a teacher and then eventually became a monk also. And I still I still feel that way even today. After many, many years of practice and teaching, I just feel like it's just an extraordinary path. It's so inclusive, should I say, so inclusive. Everyone can do it. And I'm actually really intrigued at the decision to go from practicing and teaching to really take that monastic path. And I believe that you lived as a monk for 25 years. Would you like to share your decision about like how you decided to make that extra level of commitment? And also, do you still live that way? Or have you kind of returned back to the householder path? Two very interesting questions. I'll start with the first one. I don't think it's a decision. I think it's a calling. When I was 16 years old and interested in boys and learning to drive and it was all about hair and makeup and clothes, the last thing I ever thought I would do was become a monk. (laughs) It's just, it's not, you know, you think about becoming a princess, a wife, a mother, (laughs) but never a monk. So it was, to me, it was a very natural movement into that because As soon as I started on the path, it was so deep. It was like it was like something I had done for thousands of years that I had forgotten, and suddenly it came back to me. So the next stage would be to just dedicate yourself completely, your whole life to it. And for me, it was just a very natural, easy decision. It was no thought process. It was just this is what I did, and. My teaching came out of my monastic background because I think the thing is, studying yoga is one thing, living yoga is another. And when you're a monastic, it's 24-7. You're never not living it. And that's what I wanted to do. I just wanted to know it from every side, from inside, from upside down, all the scriptures. And I think in the normal everyday world, It's hard to take that much time for most people. To answer your second question, I pretty much still live that way, although I'm married, and he was also a monk for 18 years, and we've made our home that way, and I have never veered from it in a career choice. Ever since then, I've always been either teaching or working in medical research with yoga as the main modality. So I've really never moved. We still eat the same way. We're still vegetarian, eat a little more fancy food now than we did as a monk, but it suits me. It just suits me. Would I recommend it for anyone? No. I think you have to have the calling. It has to be there. And what I feel, and you mentioned the word householder, and this has been a real wedge in in a lot of communities. 
the difference between the monastic and the householder. I don't really see a difference. I think anyone who dedicates their life, look at the two of you. How could you be more monk-like than that to dedicate your whole life that? And you both believe it and you both live it. So that's really what I think the day of the monastic is really something that's not, it's almost over. You see monasteries that were held 800 monks. There's two in there now. It's the time to me of relationships. Can you be in relationship with another person and also be in relationship with your higher self? That's harder. Being a monk was easy. Nothing bothered me. You know, I didn't, I went to bed at night alone. Nobody argued with me. Nobody told me what to do in that way. But there's something rich about bringing spirituality into a relationship. I think the two of you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? Yeah. This is a bit of a sidetrack, but it's actually something that we've spoken about with each other, just like wondering, because it seems like sometimes in yoga discussion, there's like a tension or a discussion around your spiritual practice as something that you do for yourself, for your own well-being versus something that you do within your community for community well-being. And it sounds like what you're speaking about now is really about that idea of living your practice in a way that benefits you and benefits others in the world as well, rather than something that happens in a cave on your own. Exactly. And I really feel too, and this is something that I'll often do when I counsel couples who are not getting along, I'll say, meditate together every morning, sit together. You don't have to even say anything. Just by being there, something is coming together. There's a meshing of spirits that will then trickle down to the emotional level and people get along better. So I really think that it's, it's, I wish, I really wish that more people would embrace it in the world. I think it would be a kinder world. And I think that's something we can use right now mm. is more kindness. Yeah. Absolutely. And I actually, one of the stories I really enjoyed within your book, you were sharing about how you had a not very good relationship with another monk at the ashram who was kind of really disagreeable and you could tell that he didn't like you and you used your own mantra practice to shift your own state of being when you interacted with him. And I loved hearing that just as a strategy to kind of shift an uncomfortable relationship, but also that glimpse into humanity within the monastery, because I think I had this idea in my mind that once you'd chosen that path, you had evolved beyond being a disagreeable person and you just like lived with love and compassion in every moment, but we're still human beings and we still have human emotions. And you know, it's almost worse because if you're grumpy, let's say you get up in the morning and you're grumpy. So you say to yourself, I'm grumpy, maybe I'll do some more asanas, or maybe I'll do an aerobics class, or maybe I'll meet a friend for lunch and dissipate some of that energy. In a monastic setting, you don't have those options. So you can do asana, but you can't go out for an aerobics class. You can't meet a friend for lunch. So it really makes it more compressed and and everything. And (laughs) I think a lot of people have that. I, that mistaken idea that when once you enter a monastery, you become a saint and all your shortcomings just fall away. I don't think there's anything further from the truth. There's a beautiful quote 
by Paramahamsa Yogananda. And he said, the world, the ashram will protect you from the world, but who will protect you from the ashram? That's from someone who's lived in the ashram. <laughs> yeah, because, it, it, you know, I, I always think of that now. I thought to myself, you know, now I have one husband. That's it. There, I had five husbands, six wives. You know, you have a whole that you're living with on a daily basis, intimately, right? You eat together. You meditate together. You know, you even use the bathroom together in, in certain situations. So we're all human, no matter what our title is. And to me, the most important thing is to mesh the humanity with the divinity. We want to bring those together and whatever way we can do that. But to just have one or the other doesn't seem to, to work in this world. Yeah. So, yeah, that's a good story. And it's a true story. Oh, I could tell. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess to flow on into that idea of compassion in action and using your practice to help other people, you're really famous for developing the yoga portion of like the pioneering yoga for life-threatening diseases study, like Dean Ornish's program for reversing heart disease. And am I right in thinking this is like the first major evidence-based study in Western medicine involving yoga? And that just would have opened so many doors and brought this practice to so many people. Would you like to share a bit about your experiences with this study? Yeah, you know, When I hear you say that, I actually get goosebumps because when you're doing it, you don't think about that. You just think about what's in front of you and how to do this. And you're absolutely right. It was the really first evidence-based yoga research. And we didn't just take sore backs or lower backs or something like this. We went for heart disease which is the number one reason people die. And we really had, the whole team had so much confidence that we're all yoga practitioners. And everybody felt like, as a matter of fact, it was funny. I met Dean, I had known Dean, he came to the ashram. And I was sitting out in the back lawn with him one day. And I said, well, what are you up to now? And he started telling me and he said to me, I have a question for you. I said, okay. And he said, Do you think a yoga-based program can reverse cardiovascular disease? And I looked at him. I said, I have no doubt. He said, you're hired. (laughs) That was your job interview. I said, I didn't know that was a job interview. (laughs) Right? But that's how people were hired. And I'll tell you, it was one of the most extraordinary experiences of my life to see these people come in very serious disease, and within a relatively short time, leading normal lives and watching them not just physically change, but emotionally change. They became kind. They became caring and loving. And I I just, it was just amazing to me, just amazing to me that this could happen. And it's still happening. And trying to be a little modest about it, But at the same time, I think that study, that we did two studies, lifestyle heart trial and the multi-center life trial, 10 hospitals uh, around the United States. When the results came out, I really feel it changed the way we practice medicine today. 
In the United States, it's very hard to find any major hospital without a wellness center or something like that. And that was unheard of then. So I think people that because we did it as a bona fide study and we published in these really prestigious journals, I think people got it and still it's happening. And now the whole yoga therapy has just exploded. But I think that's the seed it came from. And so after such a heart-filling and intellectually challenging experience. Like it must have been very immersive being part of the study. Oh, yes. Was there a feeling of like, what do I do next after that? Or did you already know that you had your book to write? No. You know, I always have a couple projects lined up because I love what I do. I love what I do because I, to me, there's no difference between what I do and who I am. And that to me is the best. So as I do my service, I'm actually expanding myself also in that. I'm learning from teaching, et cetera. And I think that was one of the questions you had asked me about Shastraji. So what, what I had decided is that I was going to I was going to stop. We actually started on the prostate study and I wrote the protocol for it, but I didn't really want to be. I wanted to get out of Western medicine, even a little bit that I was in it. And I wanted to go back into what I considered my aspect of yoga that I loved. And that was the yoga sutras. So I started and I had been teaching them all along, but I started to move into this. And when I got the blessing from Shastraji, to do this work, I knew that that was the right thing to do. And I just dove into writing the first version of The Secret Power. Because like the heart trial, it wasn't that different from the heart trial in that I felt like people knew a part of yoga, but they didn't know the essence of it. Where does it come from? Why does, why when I bend and stretch, does it make me feel better? What is it about yoga? So that's what I wanted to then. I wanted to show people, hey, look, look at this scripture. We can relate to this. Let's look at this. Look at this in the year now, not how it was 2000 years ago. So with his blessing, because, you know, I was a little shy, like it's interesting, like the heart disease. No one had ever done this before as a woman. All the other versions were written by men. No one had bothered to say to a woman, what do you think, right? Does this apply to you? After all, we're more than half the population of the world. At least one book should be dedicated to us. So, but it it was a hard, it was a hard decision. And I was warned, you know, you're very sensitive. You're going to get a lot of criticism from it. But then when people like Shastraji, a great, Vedic master said, it's about time a woman should do this. It it bolstered me and it gave me the confidence to do it. And then, of course, the women and men, the men that were interested, just loved it. So it gave gave me the confidence and also that I had done the right thing. I felt I had done the right thing. Yeah, just reading your writing, you are in this really interesting position because you already have the sensitivity of kind of examining examining a text from another culture 
and then examining the commentaries on that text. And it seemed like a lot of the commentaries really spoke more of the time they were written in and the patriarchal values of that time rather than the time that the text was originally written in. So in some ways you were doing a bit of a radical interpretation that was sometimes quite different (laughs) from the English translations, but I got the sense that you were actually trying to get closer to the heart of the original text. So it's this interesting tension between trying to be true to the text but also being a bit radical in your interpretation compared to others. Would you like to share a bit about the challenges of those interpretations and also the challenge of how much of yourself do you put in? Mm -hmm. Wow, these are really good questions. You really thought about this. Radical is my middle name. (laughs) I just... If people say you think out of the box, I don't even see the box. I don't even know there's a box. It never occurred to me that this was something that was unusual. It just never occurred to me. I thought, because what happened, it was a very organic process, really. That moment that I talked about before when I walked up the steps and I saw Swamiji's picture, when when they finally opened the door, what I said to them is, I want to learn the sutras. And they said, you have to learn Hatha yoga first. And I said, I don't want to learn Hatha yoga. I'm a medical person. I know all about the physical body. I want to learn the other. And they said, no. So I had to go through the channels. And there was something about the sutras that just touched me so deeply, yet I couldn't identify with certain things like controlling the mind. I mean, what I always say to people, how many of you have actually tried to control your mind? And how many of you have succeeded? No one raises their mind, right? So to me, it was not about control. It was about the sutras were telling us, this is your nature. This is who you really are. And this is how to get back to it. To me, it was like a roadmap. So when I started I was teach. I had been teaching for a long time, and the students, because oh, I was using there was basically two books at that time, it was How to Know God by Christopher Isherwood and Swami Prabhavananda, and Raja Yoga by Vivekananda. Those were the two brilliant books, but for a woman in the 21st century or 20th century, then it's not relatable. It, well, I I couldn't relate to. I had to change it to relate to it. And that's what I started doing in my teachings. So we'd read something and I'd say, okay, it could also mean this. Let's talk about it. And the students started saying, why don't you write the book? And I said, well, I'm not a scholar. I can't write books. They said, no, we don't want a scholar. What we want is someone who understands it because they live it and then to go from there. So that's how it all started. And then I started writing down little notes and and then I got addicted to it. I got hooked on it. It was so exciting to me. I, I would go in, i say, do you know what this sutra really means? And people would look at me and they go, what? What is she doing? But I would get so excited about a sutra and they came alive to me in a way that I had never seen them before. And I still love them. I was a little sorry, actually, when I finished my book. I was, you know, just a little bit because I just I didn't want to let it go. It must be a little bit like having your child go off to college or something. You know, you you love them and you want them to to go, but you want them also to stay. So it's just been a love of mine. And what I want 
what I was hoping to do with the books is to translate and transfer that joy that I feel to other people because I want them to love the sutras too. And this is quite a, I guess, nerdy um, technical question, but I was really interested. Did you translate from the Sanskrit yourself or like, how did you choose which translation to work from? Because when you read different ones, like interpretations can be really different. Yeah. So how I did it was very interesting. I don't have a Sanskrit background. That's not my background. And there's a part of me that feels it would have been a very different book if I had, because the tendency is to take things more literally when you know the translation of a language. And the one thing I've really learned about Sanskrit is it's not a literal language. It's a vibrational language. So what I did is I took every book that I knew and I could relate to, and I had 12 to 15 books, all different translations. What I learned is they're actually not all different translations. Most of them are very much the same. And then I started to find the ones that really resonated more with me. And all the time I had the Saraswati mantra playing on a continuous loop. And I had her statue right in front. And uh, every morning before I started writing, I would pray to Saraswati to give me the, and Vak, you know who Vak is? She jumps from the tongue and she's the goddess of speech. So I had all that around me. I remember I had this big desk and there was copies of the book everywhere. And sometimes I would read it and have no idea. And I would just say, okay, just let it sit. And sometimes I would fall asleep. I would dream what the sutra meant. I'd wake up. My husband would say, where are you going? It's three o'clock in the morning. I'd say, I just found out, figured out what it meant. And I'd go and write it down. Yeah. So that was the process. And then do you remember the story in the book about my darshan with Sri Patanjali in India? Yes, but please share it. (laughs) Okay. Because that was, you know, I had already written most of the book. But somehow that propelled me to another level. All right, so let me, I'll try to make it as short as possible. When you're dealing with a major publisher, they have deadlines. So I told my editor, I said, I'm going to India. He said, okay, turn it in before you go. So December 1st, I turned in the manuscript and went off to India. Now, when I was writing the manuscript, one of the things when I was going through all the different samadhis, I thought to myself, do people really need to know this? I mean, is this really important? And I decided it really wasn't. It was just maybe a distraction. And um, I just put a little note in and I went off to India. And at a certain point, we were walking through one of the big temples in South India, one of my favorite temples, Rameshwarapuram, for those of you that might know. And we, we went in. And they have 22 sacred wells that you bathe, you, you bathe in first before you go in to the temple. So you're very pure by the time you go in. And we're walking around, and I, I actually had two students with me, and I said to them, there's a shrine to the angry Hanuman. Like everybody thinks of Hanuman as the great servant, which he is. 
but he got angry at one point. And they have this statue of him. He's bright red with his teeth bared, like he's ready to attack. And so we went and we saw him. And then I said, let's just sit in meditation for a few minutes. And then we all got up and I was kind of not quite there. So I was walking very slowly. And as I was rounding the inside of the, the shrine, all of a sudden I felt this wall of energy come down and I couldn't permeate it. I couldn't go any further. My husband and the students were ahead. And all of a sudden this vortex swung me around to this, what looked like just a plain stone wall. I didn't, there was no cognition, so I wasn't thinking. And I was just pulled very close to the wall. And then I heard my husband coming behind me, talking to someone. He had found a priest, and the priest was showing him some things. And the priest saw me at this wall. And as it turned out, there was a tiny little window, maybe about three inches by five inches glass with a little candle in it. And the priest walked up behind me and he said, oh, you know what that is? And my I couldn't talk, but my husband said, no, what is it? He said, that's the Maha Samadhi shrine of Sri Patanjali. Everybody gasped. I mean, I had been thinking about him, meditating on him, thinking, what did he mean by this? Why did he say it like this for so long? And then he drew me to him. I felt so validated. I can't tell you. And when I got home, I wrote the entire Samadhi chapter. <laughs> and that's why it's in the book now. So it was, I didn't get validated by the normal people one would think. I got validated by things like that, by Shastraji and also Sri Patanjali himself. And it was interesting when I talked to some of the men teachers, when I got back, they said, how do you know it was not only that? How do you know? I said, look. When you have the experience, you don't need anybody else to say anything. You know what it is. So anyway, that's my Patanjali Samadhi Shrine story. Hi, it's Joe here. And if the last couple of years have shown, being adaptable and creating autonomy within your yoga business has never been more important. However, creating a website from scratch can be a very expensive and daunting proposition, especially when you combine it with creating a booking system, mailing list, and managing online payments and sending out Zoom reminders for all your online classes. I did a lot of research for our mentoring clients to find the best value and easiest to use package, which is also supports tiered pricing, donation-based classes, and was accessible and understandable for new teachers who aren't super comfortable with technology. We recommend Offering Tree, and we're now Offering Tree Ambassadors. Use our link, offeringtree.com slash flowartists, to get one month free or 15% off an annual plan. The Essentials plan's only $22 US per month the time of recording this and includes everything that you need as a new teacher building your yoga business. We'll pop the link in the show notes for you. Well, actually, I did have a question about the nature of samadhi, you know, just a simple question, <laughs> <laughs> including the concept of, is it subaji or sabaji with seed? And the idea of seeing samadhi as a state that we experience and then we learn from rather than it just being this like destination stage that once we get to, we exit the rest of the world. And I guess that's the Maha Samadhi, that's death. But along the way, it, like I just really like to kind of 
explore a bit the idea of like the different states of samadhi. And I guess it's coming back as well to our practice being something that we live and something that we share rather than a separate state that we exit to. Yeah. So again, very astute question and very, could be a very long answer. I'll try to do my best. The first thing I think we have to look at is how the structure of the Yoga Sutras. So they're, they're divided into four padas or four books. And the first two basically tell us our, our nature and how to get back to it if we've lost it. That's, that's a simple. When we move into books three and four, we're getting into a very esoteric and not something that anyone can practice. So if you notice, when you look at Ashtanga Yoga, you'll see that the only the first five are described in book two. Book three is where we find dharana, dhyana, and samadhi. Because book three is called Vrabhudipada, which means the gifts, the powers. So what, to me, how I interpreted it, Patanjali was saying to us, you can practice everything up to pratyahara, but if you really want to get into dharana, dhyana, and then the many samadhis, those are no longer practices. Those are states of being that have come because you did the practices. So, and that, that's difficult for people. I, I think it's very difficult because that means when you sit there, you're actually not doing something. You're letting go. So that's when you enter. So first, dharana in itself is a very deep and then you get into dhyana. Finally, when you get into samadhi, you get into all these with form, without form. It goes through. But what I always tell people, if you try to identify which samadhi it is in samadhi, you're out. Because the mind, it's not in the mind. But it's that being willing to let go of everything. Your identity your practice. And you know, when I say this to people, I almost, I almost got in big trouble. I was talking to a group, they were kind of friends more than students. And I, and they asked me about the new book and I said something. And I said, you know, the thing is at a certain point, you have to let go of all your practices. You have to let go of your mantra. They looked at me. I thought they were going to come after me. They said, let go of my mantra. Never. They said, never would I let go of the mantra. And but that's what's necessary. You cannot go in carrying anything. Everything has to be let go. So I think that samadhi, and what I also feel is important to show people is how each of us have been in samadhi at certain points, looking at a beautiful sunset. You know, you just get absorbed into that. Watching, looking at a brand new baby. Things like that that take us out of our ordinary thinking and present us into an experience instead of trying to create something. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And so much about the contradictions of the more that you push and you strive and you try, the further away you're getting from this goal that you have in your mind, which maybe even in itself is a limited perception of what is possible. We can't even begin to imagine it. The only, what I tell people, I'm trying to explain to people this, and it's, it's difficult because there's no words. But what I say, 
once you touch samadhi, you're never the same again. Something has changed in you that will never change back. It may be very subtle. Maybe you don't dislike someone as much as you used to. Maybe you're a little kinder to somebody. Maybe a concept comes to you clearer. So it, it's a very it's a very hard thing for Western minds to understand because we're always taught, don't just sit there, do something, right? In this case, not only do you sit there and not do something, but there's no there's no doing. It's just a state of being. And we don't understand that. We don't West Eastern understands that more. But I think people are wanting to learn that, they're wanting to come to that. And but still, when you talk about yoga, they're thinking of doing yoga. Let's do our yoga, right? And instead, how about being yoga? Can we be yoga? And that philosophy actually flows into one of your explanations or translations of the concept of ahimsa, which I think is really beautiful and quite unique to your book, which is embracing reverence and love for all in brackets, ahimsa, we experience oneness. So it's not just like the absence of violence, but it's actively cultivating love and living in that state. Would you like to share a little bit more about that beautiful idea? Thank you so much, because, you know, it always bothered me to have this extraordinary virtue reduced to nonviolence. And I think one of the things I've really learned as a writer, is the English language is a very difficult language, especially to talk about anything spiritual. What the English language has a habit of doing is taking a negative word and putting a non or un in front of it, thinking it's going to change it. Well, the human mind doesn't work like that. If they see an un, they get rid of it and you're left with violence. One of the things I always say to people is, can you okay? imagine this scenario? His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, is getting ready to give a talk. He's in the green room, right? And he's talking to himself. And he's saying, because they always describe him as being nonviolent, which I think is a terrible thing to say about the Dalai Lama personally. But And he starts talking to himself, saying, okay, I'm going to go out there and I'm not going to be violent, right? No matter what happens, I'm not going to be violent. Well, that's preposterous, right? Instead, he says, my religion is kindness. He never says he's nonviolent. Why would you put that on someone like that? He's kind. He's loving. He's compassionate. So this is what I try to do in the whole book. I try to take out all those negatives that we're so wrapped up in and make it into something positive. I, I use the, the thing that I think we say as a child even, don't tell me what not to do. Tell me what to do. Because if you say to me, don't touch that. Well, okay, then what do I do? What can I touch? Right? So that's what I try to do. And to me, ahimsa is the pinnacle of the yamas. That from there, everything else comes into, into form. And what is ahimsa? If you're Seeing everyone as yourself, that's it. You have love and compassion. And if you're not going to have love and compassion, what's the point of doing all the yoga practices? That's how I feel about it. So that was a very important one for me to translate as that. 
And I, I have never seen it translated any other way, that, that way before. But it felt to me that it was right. And so many people have reacted positively to it that I knew it was. Yeah. It was the right thing to do. Yeah, I, I guess you had, now that you pointed out, the idea of describing it as nonviolence, it, it sort of seems such a, a weird place to start. <laughs> yeah, like, set the bar yeah, real low. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I, so, you know, there's a lot of things that I could say bad about the Western world, but there's also a lot of great things about it. And one of the things is I, as a woman, can put up out a book and it's okay. If no one reads it, that's another story. But I have the right to do that and the privilege to do that. This is just how I see it. If someone else sees it a different way, there's 15 other versions of, of the sutras. Read, read another one. It's okay. But what I found is that people reacted so positively to it. Like you're saying, reducing this great thing to non-violence or non-harming. I mean, because then people take themselves out of it. They'll say, well, I'm not violent. This isn't for me, right? I mean, I'm not a violent person. I, I don't think I've ever hit anybody in my life, you know? But that doesn't mean loving and compassionate. And that's what we're striving for, yeah. And the other thing is I changed all the mind to heart. And that came from the Upanishads. So as I was reading all these volumes, something was missing. Because, you know, the word mind is very new. It's just in the last couple hundred years they've, they've even talked about mind. They talked about heart before. The thoughts and feelings came from heart. So what I did is I skipped over the sutras and I went back to the Upanishads. And in the Upanishads, that's where it says, the light of our divine self is housed in the center of the heart. And so I knew that what I was feeling was maybe not the popular, but it was something that was very, very strongly talked about in the Upanishads. So that's where I, I it always bothered me the mind because the mind just does what the mind does. You know, it's just a mind. It likes to argue, it likes to get into things, but the heart doesn't. The heart just wants to love everybody. That's all. That's it. It's simple. And I really feel that, that that's where it comes from. Yeah. Another one of your interpretations that I really appreciated because it's something that when I've read other texts just hasn't felt appealing to me. And that is the concept of brahmacharya because I don't necessarily want to live a celebrate life. And it feels like denying an aspect of humanity and hearing about you're just spelling out how much of that is about patriarchy and how much of that is the puritanical mindset of the author of that text really made sense. Would you like to speak a little bit more about that? Oh, you've got one of my favorite topics. <laughs> <laughs> As a matter of fact, when I wrote it, I wrote about 18 pages on Brahmacharya and my editor made <laughs> cut it back. Because it, it, you're so right. It's so misunderstood. Where they got this, I, 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 it's just unbelievable to me. Because it's, it's two words, two beautiful words. Brahma, Acharya. 
right? Brahma is an aspect of the divine. Acharya can mean either student or one who follows or teaches even. Where did they get this from? So if you look, the in the Vedic text, it talks about four ashramas, four stages of life. And the first one is called the Brahmacharya stage. And that's usually somewhere up till about 25 years. This is the time when you study, when you get all your knowledge about what you're going to do in your life, etc. You learn to be a doctor, an engineer, a yoga teacher, whatever you're going to do. And the idea was that you wouldn't have any relationships at that point because your all your energy goes into studying. And then after you finish studying, you took on a partner and had a family and went on like that. So the first stage was brahmacharya. Instead of taking it for what it was intended to be, to study, to, to really understand what was going on with nature, they reduced it to celibacy. And I think they've done a real disservice for people. That's where the divide came between the monks and the householders. And being Having been both a monk and a householder, it doesn't matter. It's it's your, it's your attitude, it's your practices. And what it did also, it made the woman the sorcerer. It made her the bad one. And even today, and I, I'm sorry to say this, but you go to certain places and women are not respected, covered, they're hidden. Some places they can't even go out. I think this just makes it, perpetuates that myth. And as a woman writing this, there's no way that I could have written it like it's written. So I really, I really got into it and saw, what is this? What does it mean to be with another person and have a sexual relationship? What does that mean? And I really think to me, it's, it's a spiritual practice if done right. And how I always say this to people, I said it should be karma yoga when you make love to someone. You shouldn't think about yourself being satisfied. You think about satisfying the other person, and they think about satisfying you. Then, to me, that's a perfect act, and that's a spiritual practice. That's how I feel about it. And not just in the yoga tradition, but there's a lot of other traditions where they force the celibacy, and they, with the notion that you're going to be more spiritual if you do that. And that has not been my experience at all. Matter of fact, sometimes people who force it are more frustrated and angry and grumpy. You know, rather go out and find somebody you love. And then then you're filled with love and joy. And you can spread that around the world. So I, I really felt probably that was, of all the sutras, that was probably the most profound sutra to reinterpret for me because I felt that it had just been destroyed, just terrible. And then this whole notion, well, if you, if you, if you can't control yourself, then get married. Even in the Bible, it says that better to marry than to burn. No, it should be a, it should be a sacrament to be married to someone or to be with someone. And there's no shame in it. It's a beautiful thing. That's how I feel about it. And I felt that way when I was celibate. 
I did I love to see people in love. I, I thought it was the most wonderful thing. It wasn't, I, there was no fear around it. It was just a beauty. And I still love to see people in love much better than being miserable. Yeah. <laughs> and that's really what I thought about kind of reading those chapters. It's like, I don't think I want to choose this path. Like, I don't think this yeah. is the kind of energy that I want to cultivate in my life, even if there is a mystical spiritual goal at the end of it. You know, I don't think I've ever seen anything as beautiful as a couple who share the same spiritual life and share the love together. The whole world looks at them and says how beautiful it is because you can do so much more with a partner than you can otherwise. And, you know, I was happy with both. I was happy as a monk and I'm happy being married, but I haven't changed. Maybe the way people look at me, I've changed, but I haven't changed. I still feel like a monk or not. It's, it, it's just, to me, how kind are you? It doesn't matter what you do. And this is what I was trying to explain to someone the other day. I was talking to them and they said, well, what's their profession? I said, that it really doesn't matter what they do. It's how they do it. You know, you can be scooping ice cream out for someone. You do it with enough love. doesn't matter, you know? And there are people like that. They're just happy people that just when you're in their presence, they make you feel good. So I think that's the most important thing. And if your path is brahmacharya or if your path is celibacy, great, enjoy it. But I don't think it's a high spiritual value. I said, if that was true, most of the senior senior citizens in the world would be realized, right? At 90, very few of them are still sexually active, but they're also not realizing it's not the celibacy. It's how you act in the world. Hmm. Yeah. And I guess that brings me to my next question, which is actually a really hard one to ask because I know what a painful topic it is. But unfortunately, it really is a reality in the world that we live in that in most major lineages, there is some kind of abuse which has happened. And I see in your writing, like your deep respect for your teacher, Swami Satchidananda, and I know how much pain there's been within your ashram community and within the global community when abuse comes to light. And your whole book is about honouring and empowering women. So I felt like I really had to kind of raise this and get your thoughts around it because there's so many layers to this. There's, can I still learn from this person when they have committed harm to others. Like, how do I navigate this as yeah. a student? And I'd really like, I'd really appreciate your perspective. And I thank you as well for being willing to tackle this because I know what a tough topic it is. I, very few topics are off the table for me. I, I Sex I could talk about for the next 20 hours. Well, you know, it's, it's a very complicated situation. It's not simple. And I, I, I think what I what I'm going to go back to is imagine if it was your father, not a spiritual teacher, but say you found out that your father had abused somebody at a certain point or whatever. I don't I won't say your sister, but you know just maybe somebody. You're split at that moment. You know all the good that he's done and how much you love him, but he's done something that is not okay. I'm saying it simply. And where do you go with it? So you're split. 
And I think this is what happened to a lot of us when this finally came out. You have to understand that in a spiritual community, there are a lot of secrets. And the guru is separate. You don't really know what the guru is doing most of the time. He doesn't just, at least in our lineage, he just didn't come and sit down with us and have tea most of the time, you know. So you really didn't know what was happening. And so most of it was very much hidden. When it finally came out, it just blew the community into bits because some people believed it. Some people didn't believe it. Some people would stay with him no matter what. And it was a very difficult thing for me. I I was not involved in the abuse because one of the things I've seen is who the predators pick on. And I was not their type. I have too too opinionated. (laughs) I have too too much to say. And so what happened for me, I was teaching at the time. I'd been teaching for many, many years. And when this all came out, I was in the forefront of explaining to people what happened. And I had no explanation for it. I had no excuses for it. And But did I want to throw out the previous 18, 20 years of learning? Because what he had taught was beautiful. It was scriptural. So it shows that you can really split. There can be a split that a person can have some lot of good and then do something horrific also. So I think at that point, everyone in the community who was close made a decision. They either made a decision to stay and deny that he's ever done it. They made a decision to stay and know that he had done it, but people do things and you forgive them. And then there was the ones that left. And I think that that is the pattern that I've seen in most communities. Now, as you said, this is not an isolated incident. I wish it was. Does it still go on today? Absolutely. And to me, I'm more horrified at what happens today than I was then because we know better now. It's not like it was then. Then we had this whole idea that they were beyond any physical needs or wants, etc. And I traveled with Swamiji and I knew that wasn't true. You know, he got hungry and grumpy just like I did when the food wasn't there or after an all night uh, flight or something like that. I tried to maintain the humanness in him. And it was easy because I was traveling with him. But there were certain things that were just not okay. And my line at the time, what I said to people, when they asked me, do I think it's true? I just said something very simple. From my experience, that's all I can go by. Groups of women do not lie about something like this. They have nothing to gain and all to lose. They're usually made to look really bad, like what just happened with this legal case in the United States, just horrific what they did to this woman, this movie star. I tried to stay out of it, but it was impossible. It was just impossible. I was too much of a leader in the community. And shortly thereafter, I left. And it taught me a great deal. It taught me a great deal. It taught me first that people can have different sides. They can have this magnificence that he had, 
He was a magnificent human being and teacher. And then this darkness, just this darkness. And, you know, it goes back to the old adage, absolute power corrupts absolute. And I think what it taught me as a teacher that I had to be pristine. I had my actions had to be so clean and my intention had to be so clean because it could happen to anybody. That's how I, that's what it made me see. Anybody at any moment can slip if you're not totally vigilant. Yeah, totally vigilant. You know, not being in the same room with a student that there may be an attraction to just the two of you intimately doing asanas. No, you always have a third person there. And you know, it's something that I learned in medicine because anytime, and especially then, there were a lot of male doctors doing gynecological examinations on women, always a female had to be present. No, no question, that was it. They would call me, come in, I'm doing an exam now. Right? So why would it be any different with a spiritual teacher? So that's pretty much, I don't know if that's, you no, that's, that's, that, that's fantastic. And this is clearly a, a subject that's very sensitive for you. So we really appreciate yeah. you, you know, speaking with us. Well, about I, it. Think, I think people deserve to hear. To me, the worst thing you can do is hide something. Mm-hmm. To me, secrets are poison. That's how I feel about it. They're poison because they go all through your system and you have to keep covering things up. And just, I made a mistake. It was wrong. And I'm going to do something to make sure it never happens again. But that's not what the men are doing. They're all covering it up. And uh, I think it's sad. And that teachers now are doing it with the Me Too movement and everything. No, it's not okay for me. No, no. I, I I don't think they're bad people, but I think they've done bad things. And that's the difference. Yeah. You don't, you don't take advantage of someone who's, trust you in that way yeah anyway i guess uh just got one more question oh good let's not end with that yeah no 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 no, no. so (laughs) i i guess and this is going to be another interesting question we'll see it's a big one (laughs) it's a big one so i guess if you could distill everything that you've learned and everything that you teach down to one core essence what do you think that one thing would be? And I have a feeling you've you've spoken about it in in many different ways during this this last hour or so. so but I look forward to hearing your answer. Very simple answer: love. That's it. It's all this is about. You know, one of my great teachers, actually my my first and basically my only real female teacher was Mataji Indra Devi, and I was talking to her one day, and I said. What is all this, Mataji? What is all this about? And she said, this is how she talks. She was from Russia. She said, darling, she said, yoga is just an excuse to love them. That's it. And you know, I've never, ever forgotten it. And whatever I do, I try to add that as the main ingredient. And this is all, this is what we need. I I would start singing the Beatles song, but you don't want to hear me sing. (laughs) But love is what we need. But I think all religion and spirituality boils down to that. And if we can't love each other and ourselves, you can't touch your spirit. 
That's what your spirit is, love. So I think that's the simple thing. And I'm hoping that in my writings it comes across. I really don't like judgmental scriptural testimony. I think once you bring judgment into it, you're no longer in the spiritual realm. To me, a spiritual heart accepts everything. And that gets back to the last question, too. Did I stop loving him because he did that? No. But that doesn't mean I condone it. So I think you can be in a few places at the same time, but always leading with love. That's the most important thing. Whether you're teaching asana, whether you're doing asana, that's when people hurt themselves, when they don't love themselves enough. And they bend forward. And they say, oh, I'm going to push it. No. If you really loved yourself, you would back up a little bit. So that to me is the essence of that, of all the sutras and all the scriptures and all the traditions. It all comes down to that. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah, that's amazing. Thank you so much. And that absolutely shines through your text. And I think it's something that shines through your life as well, like you're sharing yoga with people who are struggling with health and then sharing the deeper layers and the mental and emotional aspects of this practice in a way to a group of people, women, and also other people like non-binary people who've been cut out of that particularly masculine patriarchal translation and maybe have felt like these words or these practices were somehow not for them or not for them on the same level. Like I think what you've really done is just shared from the heart and really opened up these practices so that we can all learn from them and we can all grow and we can all live in a more love-filled way. And what else is there? That's it, isn't it? And whether, however you identify yourself, the spirit is one. That's really what, what it is. And if the spirit is one, then whatever anyone does or however they identify themselves, it's all okay. Every person should have the ability to identify as whatever they want. Nobody tells you how to identify. But to me, the best identification is as a spiritual being. That's beautiful. Then everybody's one. Everybody's one. Yeah. Beautiful. We hope you enjoyed our conversation with the Shala Joy Devi. We'll include all the links to her book and website in our show notes, as well as Nishala's free weekly sutra and commentary email, which is ideal for people who'd like to begin learning about the yoga sutras in bite-sized pieces. I'd like to thank our Patreon supporters for their help with making this episode possible. If you'd like to support us, just go to patreon.com slash flowartistpodcast. You can help out from just $1 a month. Our theme song is Baby Robots by GoSoul and is used with permission. Check it out at gosoul.bandcamp.com. Thank you so, so much for listening. We really appreciate you spending your precious time with us. Here, aroha nui maua kia koutou katoa. Big, big love. Love.